Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we speak to Peter Moffat, who is the writer of TV shows including Silk, Criminal Justice and Cambridge Spies. So it was a bit of a first for us on the podcast. We've been looking to have as broad a range of writers as possible, and Peter is our first screenwriter. It was certainly an education for Catherine and myself. This is a world that we're uh, much less familiar with than other areas we've looked at. But Peter was very gracious and covered a lot of ground. Yeah, he started off talking about his background in the law and how that gradually led him into screenwriting. But it's a fascinating conversation and we hope you enjoy it. Okay, Peter, can you tell us a bit to start off with about uh, you know, your background and how you made this journey from law into, into writing? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm going right back to the start. Um, an army childhood, which meant a boarding school childhood, almost always did if you're an army child, mm. um, from the age of eight, which connects, I think, to writing in that... I heard it described um, the other day as uh, being sent somewhere where nobody loves you okay um which is the kind of uh bad way of looking at it i think the upside of being sent to somewhere where nobody loves you is that you're 24 hours a day 12 weeks at a time with people your own age um which necessarily provides you with an extraordinary kind of space for imagination i think i think if you put any group of eight-year-olds in dormitories and all of life together they will imagine hard and they will work well at being things that I suspect it's probably true some other kids are not at boarding schools don't get to be. Um, so in a way for me, um, horrible homesickness, profound upset and relationships the like of which I have never replicated. Um, it's a trauma because, bond, as it were. Trauma, bo- trauma bond and um, use of language... Um, very, very important to uh, uh, own your own particular way of speaking with each other, which I know to be true because, of course, when you leave boarding school, um, I found, and lots of my friends and contemporaries have found, that it's very hard to have relationships which were as good as the ones that you had as a child at school. So life is disappointing okay. for five years until you resettle in the world, is what I found. Um, but re-meeting those people from those school days more recently and jumping back into the, that, that language and the way that you speak has just reminded me how, how exciting all that was. And although none of it was self-conscious, I think the speed at which you were asked to, required to, wanted to think and speak and write um, it, it is a part of how one might become a writer in the end. Sounds a little pompous. I, I really thought about it that way before, probably, but I think it, I think there's something in it. I really um, like that. I'm going to steal that. I was also sent to boarding school, age you? seven, and yeah. I it was definitely a creative, imaginative space for me. But it was more in a kind of, I sort of made up terrible fibs about my, <laughs> I made my origins much more exotic than they actually were. I was sort That's of like really in my in my mind, I was the little princess. Yeah. And I told different variants of, of different stories, and of course, got caught out. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were free to, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, nobody knew about who you were and what you were doing. And it, yeah. So where does law then fit? Okay. Where does the law so come the from? other side. Sorry, I'm uh, banging on about school no, life, and I will stop in a second. <laughs> um, I went to a really terrible public school in Kent. Okay. Um, terrible in that I got no education at all. I was frightened of a lot of the teachers and spent ten years avoiding having to learn anything by hiding and being badly behaved in order to hide. <laughs> 
Um, and, it, and two weeks before A-levels, having failed most of my O-levels, um, I thought, oh, God, I've got to get it together and went across the road to the University at Kent in Canterbury um, and spent two weeks working really, really hard on A-levels and, to my amazement, did tremendously well, having failed everything. Okay. And then suddenly the world was open and I thought, as you do at 18, what would be great to do now that I've got great results? I'll just do law. That sounds exciting. And so I did law. And then the next big choice is, do you want to be a barrister or a solicitor? Four years on, I thought, well, I'll be a barrister, dress up, do that stuff. So and these decisions, I, I can honestly say, are based on absolutely nothing. Okay. You know, I don't think I had any feeling for the law, any proper reason for wanting to go into it. I'm really glad I did. Really glad I did. I spent 10 years at the criminal bar. Taught me a huge amount about writing. What did it, what did it teach you and, and why did you think you would get it? I wasn't um, a confident enough or good enough advocate to have the nerve not to prepare all my cross-examination in advance, um, which means staying up all night typically because you know this. You get a brief at six o'clock in the mm-hmm. evening and it's for tomorrow morning and it's five days at Southwark Crown Court doing an armed robbery. So would you try and prepare everything that could happen? Everything. It's like, it's like a branching everything. tree, right? Well, it isn't. The... No, it isn't that. Because okay. um, you have witness statements from prosecution witnesses, so you, you know what they will probably say okay. in the witness box. There's a kind of great conceit, great cheat uh, in television and film drama, which is set in legal back, you know, settings, which is that nobody has any idea what the witness is going to say. Mm. And it's important to maintain that because it's way more exciting. It isn't true at, at all. Right? <laughs> Most police officers absolutely replicate in the witness box what's in their notebook mm-hmm. and what's in their witness statement. Right? But as an advocate, as a barrister who wants to cross-examine that police officer, what you can then do is you know what their answers to your questions are going to be. Right. So in other words, you can construct a, a structure, you can ask questions which you know will lead to certain answers which can then lead to other questions and you can direct a narrative, you can create a narrative. And it's all in dialogue, right? And it's all in dialogue uh, whilst pretending that it's all spontaneous, whilst pretending for the benefit of the jury that the answers that you're getting are not answers that you're expecting at all, okay? So this is a sort of control of dialogue, this is a control of a narrative and it's a competing narrative because you're competing with the other side. So if I'm defending uh, why... Uh, the prosecution narrative is the is the opposite to me. It's an adversarial system, okay. So the, so the best story wins. It's not about the truth. It's, it's not, not an inquisitorial. It's not inquisitorial. We're not after what happened, okay. We're after uh, finding which version a jury will prefer at the end of the day, and that's storytelling, and it really yeah. is. And the best storytellers do win. I really firmly believe that. Is that what you believed at the time, or is that something that you've come to believe since? Oh, I've seen, I've seen, I mean, I had a pupil master who's a genius, funniest actor I've ever seen, a barrister, obviously. Um, great mimic, and just wondrous to listen to. And I think that gives any client 50% more chance, having something like that. I've also seen shockingly bad barristers. Mm. There are barristers I know working today who if I was arrested now and charged with some serious offence I would have you definitely represent me tomorrow morning at the Old Bailey than a number of them definitely right uh, and it's only really in the criminal law that people are on their on their feet as much as it's right that a lot of the commercial barristers their work is much more written much more written yeah um, my wife's a family lawyer so she does a lot of um, spoken stuff too but um, criminal law is very particular that way competing yeah. stories um 
And then, of course, jury speeches, mm. which have to have beginnings and middles and ends and, you know, make sure that 12 people like it, want to believe it. And that could be damn hard sometimes, advocating for the most ridiculous defences on occasions, you know, um, trying to get people to, to buy it. And arguing, I think writing is arguing. I think mm. dialogue is arguing. I think David Mamet is absolutely right, is that you, you know, um, people always want something from a conversation and that's a tension. I think that's really important to remember and it's really true um, in cross-examination in the witness box that you're, you know, want two different things. And when did you start to think that you're, you had writing ambitions beyond these opportunities you were getting in the law? So the one thing I got from my terrible boarding school was a kind of, um, well, actually was the Great Gatsby, A-level Great Gatsby, Scott Fitzgerald, and a sort of appalling 17-year-old romantic idea of what writing and writers might be, um, which, you know, made me want to be a writer. Were you an avid reader apart from, you know, um, the Great Gatsby and, and kind of schoolwork? Not till, not till late, not till mm. very late, but, but, it, but it, it's also a horrible block I think, that kind of romance mm. about writing. Mm. I think so many writers are stopped from writing because they think they shouldn't be doing it unless they're as special as James Joyce or Scott Fitzgerald. And I had that for years because I just thought, you know, if I can't be James Joyce, what's the point? And then um, I wrote a play, a short play, and entered it to, into the South London International Playwriting Festival... <laughs> at the Warehouse Theatre in Croydon, and me and Abby Morgan were runners-up together. And that meant that you got a, um, a reading. You know, actors came in and read your play. And it's just that sort of embarrassing thing now when I think about it. Um, it's just validation that somebody else had said, um, this is worthy of being read by actors. And therefore, it's OK to go and be a writer. What it's pathetic, really. It's so pathetic. It was, well, it was, um, it was called A Fine and Private Place, and it was about um, an obituarist. I can't remember much about it, to be honest. And was it clear that you wanted to write drama? Was that always the, the ambition? Yeah, so I, start, I started writing plays. Yeah. Um, I think that dialogue thing comes from those two places, mm. school and law. Um, so that felt like the natural place to start. Um, I read a couple of plays, two or three plays, one about lawyers at the Hampstead Theatre. Uh, the set producer of Kavanagh QC came and saw it and said, do you want to come and write an episode of Kavanagh? I was tremendously snooty about it. I said, I don't want to do that. I want to be a playwright when I grow up. <laughs> and, and my wife Leah said to me, Does, how much money do you get for an episode of Kavanagh QC? And I said, and she said, well, you're going to go and write television then, aren't you? LAUGHTER <laughs> Why, were you um, still sort of doing your... Were you still a barrister at this point? Were you doing yeah. this on the side? Yeah. So I was still at the bar and I was trying to do two things at once. And I was, I can confess to you, um, often hoping on a Monday morning that my client would plead guilty so that I could go off and do what I really wanted to do, which was write. Um, and I remember very clearly getting a four-month fraud trial to do in Southampton. And it felt like the world had ended because I knew it was a huge amount of work beforehand. It would be mm. four months in Southampton doing VAT stuff. And I couldn't bear it. And I thought, I've got to stop because I really, really have to get on with 
doing what I really want to do and I'll be so cross and angry with myself if I don't. Mm. Um, so stop being frightened of it, get on with it, do it, take the plunge, take the risk, jump in. That's bollocks. It's not, it's not taking a plunge or taking a risk or being brave. It's incredibly selfish. It's the only thing you want to do. You have to do it. Um, as, it as it goes, my wife was working at the time at the bar and had enough money so that we could afford for me to do it. Yeah, I, we, all, we I, always... I definitely would have done it anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think... Um, it, you know, it isn't special writing, but I do think... Uh, the, I, I do think writers do have that kind of... Um, you've got to defend your writing time to the death. That's a quote from somebody, and I can't remember where it comes from. But I think I do that. I, I think there'd have to be an awful lot wrong in my life, an awful lot, for me not to go out of the house every morning and write. Um, and which is an attractive thing to say at all. It's an ugly thing to say, really. I do go out of the house. I have to leave the house, yeah. yeah. Do you work um, sort of in a, in a cafe or, public, or noisy spaces or do you have to go somewhere absolutely quiet and still? So Cafe Nero opens at 6.30 in Kentish <laughs> Town, which is great, and they play only classical music and nobody comes in there. The coffee's horrible. But um, the, the nice Italian uh, franchise owner um, allows Italian Spanonis. My dog comes with me. Um, we sit together and write. Um, I mean, I do the writing. J- Django, the spinner, he doesn't do so much of that. But um, And then um, he comes home and I go to the British Library. Yeah. I love the British Library. Do you know, I love the British Library. It's a great Yeah, place. I'm not, I'm not, not I, a fan. I stay at home. Okay. Well, I just yeah. have too many files and piles and stuff. Oh, okay. But as, could you talk a bit about how that whole world of, of TV and writing for theatre, you know, at the time you were coming in, how it works? It's not a world that we know at all, mm. but how, yeah. you know, how do you make your way through that? Are you commissioned? Are you pitching ideas? Or what's the so, universe? Um, they're very different television and theatre. Yeah. Um, I, so uh, I, I, I have years ago, I got commissioned for the, to write something for the National Theatre. A place was when I was turning into a television writer, and I found that I didn't have the time to do it. And I think about five years after I was commissioned, the lovely literary uh, manager at the National rang me up and said, "How's it going?" <laughs> 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 and in television. You, you've probably got about three weeks before somebody rings you up and says, yeah. how's it going? Um, so um, it happens two ways in telly. Um, you can go to somebody with your idea or they can come to you with your idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and typically a, a writer will have a, a, a number of balls in the air. Mm-hmm. So I've got maybe four or five projects, which are at different stages. There's that there are various nightmare scenarios, which are, you know, all of them land at the same time and actually, every, you know, you get, everybody wants to make all of them. That's hard. Um, or they don't, um, but you kind of have to have it. Um, normally you get a decent amount of time to write a first episode, you know, a few months mm. to do it properly. But then a television decision about whether it's going to be greenlit or not is made usually on the basis of one episode mm-hmm. and you talking about it a bit. This is in the UK. Um, and then off you go. And once the greenlit is hit then it's real pressure. Mm. It all happens really, really quickly. So you're writing as they're filming? Very often. Yeah. Very often. Um, and how much do you know? I mean, obviously it sounds like it's a little bit of a dialogue between you and what the what you what they'll want at the, at the TV studio. Do you know roughly what the shape of the, the plot will be like or how long it will run for? Or is this very much unknown when you're working on that very first? You know, the, you know the number of episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I mean, you know, a, a BBC hour is fifty-eight minutes, and 
Channel 4 ITV are like 45, 46 minutes. They're very different beasts with breaks, you know, three breaks in them. Um, so that's different. You have to think hard about that. Um, you know the number of episodes. Um, I trust in the writing process in that I take a deliberate and conscious decision not to know what the end is going to be or where it's really going and this has come until up the a, writing process is underway. In a lot of conversations with novelists that yeah. we've had, and, and also with, with fiction publishers as well, as to whether you're a planner or a plunger, it's yeah. been phrased. But you're, you're the latter, are you? I think I think I am a plunger. Yeah. Um, if if you're lucky enough to have the you know your big fat ending sitting there waiting for you, then all well and good. It's not like you you know not want to have it. You don't pretend it isn't there if you've got it. Mm-hmm. But um, so so my idea of absolute hell is sitting in a room with a whiteboard, um, with a group of other people thinking hard about what every single scene is going to be and what has to be in it and why right the way through to, 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 to the end. Pardon? Isn't that what you're about to go and that do? That is exactly what I'm about to go and do. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly, so I'm writing the first episode of what will be a 10-hour American show now on my own, right? But, and that's what happens. You write one episode and then you go and make a writer's room. Mm-hmm. It might be eight, might be 10, might be six people in a room. Um, but I'm thinking differently doing the writing. It's really, really interesting. I... I I've got more of a planning head on than I would otherwise have. And I'm really looking forward to the great privilege, actually, of having a bunch of people to talk to all of the time, being paid to listen and to think and to argue about what you're trying to write. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fantastic? You know, I think that's... And, and so my this shows... And that's this, not the case with traditional British TV. It's, you write well, as one writer. It's one writer and a script editor. Okay. Right? And... If you're lucky, a lovely exec producer who might have some time, some of the time, yeah. to speak to you about how you're doing. But then what I've started to do, what you're not supposed to do in British television, is talk to actors and directors early. Okay. Okay? Mm-hmm. Mostly because they're not cast yet if it's an actor, um, and, and, and they're not employed yet if it's a director. Directors come in really, really late. Okay? I've, I've started to kind of like undermine that. Because if I know it's a particular actor that I want is going to be in it and everyone can agree that's a good idea, I get you know a hold of them really early and we have conversations about a first episode, early drafts. So I hear what they're thinking and that's fantastic and that mm. can really change things. And they keep thinking about what they're doing right the way through the process and that's a terrific, you know, um, positive thing to have. Can we take a couple of steps back and go back to that very first offer that you got that you that you were sort of snooty about and yeah. and then your wife said no you shall what was the what was that like how did you go in there into this sort of world that had already been created and and go about the business of writing an episode um so i was lucky because it was Kavanaugh qc so it was about barristers and about the law and i knew that stuff because that's my background mm-hmm. um and but it and it, you know so 90 minutes to write one story and What's amazing about legal drama and what is always a problem for barristers and other lawyers watching it is they say, well, that's nonsense. That would never happen. That piece of cross-examination is rubbish. But what they always forget, of course, is that you probably have about 90 seconds for a scene in which a witness is cross-examined and that's it. You have to stuff everything into that. Why is it so that. short? Because you lose attention? Because, or? well, if you've got a 60-minute episode... Yeah which has a story which is a beginning, a middle and an end, which has probably has your main returning characters who've got things going on in their lives that you need to pay attention to. You probably have the, the main character has a particular resonance and connection to the nature of the case that they're doing at that stage. All of that needs your attention. All of that takes up time. Mm. Okay? And you might have four or five witnesses 
that you need to get through who are important, okay? Uh, and there just isn't much time. So it's a, it's a hell of a struggle and a hell of a skill, I think, to kind of pin down, make it as believable as it can be whilst doing it in such a short time. Um, some of that, actually, weirdly, skill comes from being at the bar and learning how to manage material and condense material and see what's important, what's not important and cut to the chase quickly and be effective. And we always try on the podcast to talk as, as openly as, as we can about money and about how the finances of, of writing work. When yeah. you're commissioned to write an episode, is it a flat fee or how does that how does that work? And how does the money for theatrical commissions compare to... TV so the really case? simple big thing about television writing is that um, you get a fee for writing um, each episode. If it's made, you get all of that money all over again. Okay. Okay, so on the first day of photography you get 100% of what you've been paid for writing it all over again. So it's a you know, key difference that getting things made you know, matters financially. Um, it's, I'm a bit out of date now because I haven't written a play for 12, 13 years. Yeah. But um, so much more money than mm. in the theatre. Yeah. It, it's a huge inducement, I think, for people to want to write television. Luckily, I think, you know, I've fallen into a, a time when television is really where it's at Um, not that long ago thinking oh my god Nicole Kidman at the Almeida isn't that amazing she's taking you know she's only getting paid 200 pounds to do something really kind of serious and everything at the Almeida and that's terrific I mean um, but I think it's the other way now I think you know all um, big actors film actors are desperate to do telly because it could because you get you get 10 hours or 13 hours of storytelling with you the actor at the heart of it and that's um not possible anywhere else. Yeah. It's a novel, right? It, it's a novel, yeah. exactly. Yeah. What's it like psychologically as well? I mean, working... I mean, what fraction of stuff gets made mm-hmm. as well? That's, and how does that work psychologically if you're often producing stuff that doesn't get made or things like that? How do you... So, um, um, I mean, I've been, I've been fortunate in yeah. that, that on the whole, um, things that I've written do have been made. Yeah. Um, I, of course, had things that haven't been made. Um... Um, I don't think I mean I'm, William Goldman says that thing about how uh, the thing about um, nobody knows anything nobody knows That's nobody nobody in the whole of movie land knows why anything is going to be successful or is not successful yeah. um, uh, it's guesswork and if you're lucky it's educated guesswork okay? and I think you know I do wonder sometimes how many really truly genius pieces of television are out there that have never been made and will never be made. It's something I've started to ask lots of executive producers, actually, in television. You know, are there things that you think would have been so tremendous and didn't make it? And they all say yes. Um, are the ratios of, of um, made to non-made different yeah. in movies as in TV? Does, does more, do more film scripts not get made? Yeah, than TV? More, more film scripts don't get made, absolutely. Um, and that's to do with financing. Right. That's to do with finding the money. Um, so, so yeah, I've written two film scripts, and um, uh, one wasn't made, and one is unlikely to be made. Um, yeah, you've worked on a sort of couple of um, of shows that have been related to to the law, and so you've been able to draw on your own experience. You've already talked a little bit about how you have to sort of really condense things down. Mm. What has been the reaction from the world of of the legal world to um, to to the things that you've created and, and written? So I suppose the biggest reaction was I wrote something called Criminal Justice, which was very simple. It 
Ben Whishaw was the, the, the lead character. A 21-year-old boy is arrested for the really nasty knife murder of a girl his age. And he has no idea at all about whether he did it. He was so drunk and drugged that he has no memory of doing it. Right? So he feels that it can't have been him. He, would, he, he thinks he knows it wasn't him, but he can't be sure. Okay? And he tells the truth about that, fatally for him. He tells everybody he comes across, police officers, lawyers, and eventually a jury, that he doesn't know, right? Which is a terrible story in an adversarial system. It's really, really unlikely to secure him a not guilty verdict, okay? Because you need a story in an adversarial system. So he's put under huge pressure by people who are supposed to be on his side, defence solicitors and barristers and so on, uh, and family and so on, to come up with something better than I don't know. Right? It was always my kind of great fear at the bar, actually, was that what if you have somebody who looks like they're really, really guilty and just isn't? And we have a system which is the best system possible, I think, which can't cope with that because they're always going to be found guilty mm. beyond all reasonable doubt is how it looks. Right. Tough shit. Down you go. And there we are. Um, so but but that was quite hard hitting in that it, it had legal professionals trying to shape and manipulate somebody and their story into something that it wasn't in order to help his chances of getting off. Okay? And that upset lots of people at the bar, um, solicitors and judges. There was a letter, right? We were looking this up beforehand. Mm. The they bar council wrote to you or something like that? The bar council wrote to the Guardian. Okay. The chairman of the bar council at the time wrote to the Guardian saying, the bar is not like this. Nobody in my profession would behave in this way. Do you think that's true? Total bollocks. Profoundly untrue. This is a bit boring, but I'm going to tell you this. Right? What happens is that if I'm arrested for something terrible, first of all, I see a solicitor. Okay? And the solicitor works out what my story is, takes a proof of evidence from me in which I say what, what I think happened. Okay? That piece of paper then goes to the barrister. right? So they, they get the piece of paper which says what the story is. But it's been... There are so many solicitors who say to clients, you, you don't want to be saying that, you don't want to be saying that, do you? Or, more likely, there's kind of all sorts of nods and winks that go on between professional and client, right? In which it's like, really? No, OK, let's just think about this a bit differently, shall we? Couldn't it have been that, dot, dot, dot? By the time you as the barrister get this proof evidence, it's a worked-on document, right? I don't then say to you, the client is this true, what you're saying here, right? Unless it's plainly bunkum and I want to put pressure on you to think about pleading guilty, I take it for what it is and get on with it, right? Um, so there's an awful lot of control of what people are saying by professionals. and the, But it has to be like that, I think. Yeah. And as a, a playwright or a dramatist working with these institutions or the, these real-world right. institutions, how important is very similar to you. I mean, you talked earlier about having that limited amount of space you have for the for the courtroom scene. Yeah. What else, what can you that, can you take exactly as is? Okay, what, so, what so, this is so I've just been to see um Darkest Hour, in which that's that now sort of semi notorious notorious scene the which Churchill goes, goes into the, the London Underground yeah. and talks to quote unquote ordinary folk yeah. about how they feel about Hitler. And sure enough, they all tell him that we will never give up, we'll stand up to the pesky Nazis and we're with you, Winston, right? And obviously it's a scene that 
never happened. Mm. Um, much worse than that... Is the myth of the small boats from Dunkirk? I'm going to come on to that, because okay. that makes me cross too. Yeah. Makes me cross. But um, is that you see all of that scene. You see, you see Gary Oldman get onto the tube carriage, have a number of conversations with real people, and get off the tube carriage. And you never leave the scene until he's finished with it. Okay? Two scenes later, he's in the House of Commons reporting to members of Parliament that the people he'd been speaking to on the tube have said this and have said that, and, have said, and they haven't. We've seen that they haven't, mm-hmm. right? Plainly, it's not being suggested by the makers of the film that Winston Churchill's making up what they said. It's just a kind of mass error. And I think it's something that you get when you know you're being untruthful, right? So I hate that film for all sorts of reasons. I hate it because it's boring. It says the same thing again and again and again. It feeds into that sort of desperate myth that we want to hold on to very, very tightly. Did you which... see the thing Anthony Lane wrote in The New Yorker about no. depictions of Churchill in film? It was like a historiography yeah. of depiction of Churchill in right. cinema and said that every performance of Churchill is basically about other performances of Churchill, not about that. Oh, but the point that I, I thought on that movie was was the small boat scene at Dunkirk yeah. because you know most soldiers were taken off by destroyers, right? The small boats were... A, were a sideshow. Okay, okay, there were 43 destroyers. Okay, 39 British destroyers and four Canadian destroyers who took two-thirds of the people that came off the beaches off the beaches. 200,000 soldiers came off the beaches at Dunkirk brought off the beaches by the Royal Navy. It's a a kind of real myth. I understand the power of myth. But Dunkirk does the same thing, right? Yeah, it does. It does. But when then, when is it legitimate to... However, well, I want to tell you about my own version of that, which I'm starting to think about much harder now. So I wrote a BBC film about Stephen Hawking, him as a 21-year-old and and first developing motor neuron disease and writing his thesis. And that's the story, battling against... What he was told was two years to live and a crippling illness, fighting through, doing his physics. Um, And Ben Cumberbatch, then kind of not very well known, was Stephen, played Stephen... Um, and, and in it, I wrote a scene, right, which has Hawking on a platform of a station with a big idea that he can replicate diagrammatically with a piece of chalk on a station platform, right? It's a really simple diagram. It's a brilliant diagram because it tells you something really big, really simply, okay? And so I've got a choice as a writer. I can have Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose put it on a blackboard, right? whilst telling some students about it and describe thing, Or I can have a really exciting moment where he jumps off a train, gets down on his hands and knees, despite the fact that he's suffering from this mm. terrible condition, and write with a piece of chalk, draw with this piece of chalk, this terrific diagram, which tells you all sorts of things about what the universe is doing. And the diagram is real, is it? The diagram, the diagram is absolutely real. Yeah. I'll show it to you later. Um, it's, fun. it's fabulous. Um, but it's made up. Okay, it didn't happen. He didn't do that on a station platform, right? He had all of the thoughts and all of the thinking is his. Mm-hmm. Um, he, in his book, is the diagram. Mm. And he can show, I can see it. He talked to me about it. Um, but he didn't get down on his hands and knees on the station platform. And I used to defend that all of the time when people said, is that, that was a great scene. And I used to confess to it being made up and see people's disappointment. And I say, yeah, well, it describes a bigger truth. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a small scene telling a bigger truth and it's a more dramatic way of doing it. I, I, I'm not sure I'd do it again now. And it, 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 really? Yeah. E- even though, even though it, it's not serving a myth like yeah. the 
Churchill scene or the Dunkirk film. It's not servicing a received wisdom. It's more exciting than it would be had I done it in a, in a classroom with a blackboard. But I, I don't know, because I think it leaves an audience worried about what is not true in the rest of the film. It's really interesting because my, my view is often, you know, if the point of departure is a drama, like they're actors, they're not the real people. Yeah. I feel that you're kind of, you're kind of over that line already yeah. and it's, it's permissible. But I suppose there's two elements here. There's, you know, is it a specific historical story like mm-hmm. 1940 or Stephen King? Yeah. Or is it a specific Milo, like the law, but the stories are general? Do you regard that as two different categories? Okay, that's really interesting. Um... Yeah, because your question, Cassia, really was about whether I have a duty to be as truthful and as honest and as I can about the categories, about law, is what your question mm. really was, and I'd shifted into cosmology. Um, I think... Um, oh, God, that's a difficult question. Um, OK. The, at the could, other could you maybe look at it through, maybe through Cambridge Spies and Silk, as okay. two examples? Like okay. One is a specific... So story. I wrote Cambridge Spies, um, and there was a uh, screening and an interview session with a bunch of journalists and an interview a, a journalist from the daily telegraph said to me did you make up any of the dialogue in this series <laughs> <laughs> and from that question i saw the whole thing coming right but of course i thought i can't be bothered to play this game right so the answer is of course I fucking did. <laughs> I wasn't present when Kim Philby and Auntie Blunt discussed secrets and sold them to, and gave them to the Soviets, right? I wasn't there, so I don't know actually what they said. Everybody, most people, who've written anything about that story, they're unreliable. Of course they are. They come from a very particular perspective, particularly the protagonists, right? So as a writer, I have to make it up. Okay. Cut to next day in the Daily Telegraph, you can see it, you know. Writer of Cambridge Spies admits making up stories. <laughs> and I, I knew it was going to happen, but I think at some point you just have to decide, I can't be bothered playing that pathetic game of, mm. you know... Otherwise you're a sort of dull, dull politician, aren't you? And I don't want to be that. So with, with say... Um, I suppose what, if you, it's better bit in process. So with, with Cambridge Spies, where there's, mm. a, there's a specific historical story yeah. and you're going to build a drama around that, what's your process for that? compared to, say, Silk, where there's a specific Milo, but the, you know, the, the canvas is wide open in terms of where the narrative can go. OK, so, um, you know, deep and long research and proper research. Um, I've had... Uh, so I wrote a series called Silk, which is about barristers. I've had a couple of few writers who've written for that. Um, I have one instance where a writer wrote a draft of a script in which a judge bangs his gavel, OK, which tells me one thing that that writer has never been inside a courtroom in his life and didn't go into a courtroom when he knew he was writing an episode of Silk because he would know that judges don't have gavels, right? And I can't believe it. I can't believe... And it makes me really worried and upset about television because I think there's... I think there's... I think it's probably can be a sort of lazier writer's medium than others. I'm... I'm not answering your question, the one, but I'm obsessed about stage directions at the moment I think it's because I want to be a novelist really deep down so I want to write beautiful stage directions I want to write really well formed sentences that when people read them they go we're making a great thing because I love this writing not here's another cliche which doesn't tell me anything as an actor at all can't help me you you know you're not crying buckets of tears you're just not as an actor how does that help you as an actor if you're told to cry buckets of tears 
right? It's a disastrous stage direction. It's profoundly unhelpful. You must work harder. No writer, no novelist would write that sentence. No self-regarding, proper, grown-up novelist would write anything like that sentence. Horrible cliche. Television writers shouldn't do it. I'm ranting. Why am I ranting? <laughs> <laughs> we're we're talking um, a rich theme. Yeah. So, um, what was the question? <laughs> what was the, the difference in your process between yeah. something based on a particular historical story okay. and something like Silk, where you've got the landscape, yeah. but you can the actual root of the drama, you can make it up? Okay. Proper research. Spend as much time as television can give you researching. Fight off everybody who wants you to start. Um, don't start until you're ready. Um, make sure that you have all the material ready to go. There's that kind of tipping point, isn't it? I think most writers kind of feel it when they are ready to go and stop mm-hmm. researching. Quite hard sometimes to stop yeah. doing the research, get on with the writing. Um, um, but I go and, I mean, I just, so the project I'm doing in America about said in Chicago, I've just spent an awful lot of time in Chicago. I've been really lucky. It's simple. Find the, a brilliant journalist who's written about a lot, who spent 30 years writing about the subject you're writing about, police and their encounters with the African-American community, right? And talk to him and get him to introduce you to everybody that he knows, Mm. right? It's just basic journalism, right? Which is the David Simon model, right? He was the journalist. It's so easy. Well, he was the journalist, but um, it's not that difficult, okay? And so often now I read scripts in that area, in that genre, and it's just obvious to me that they haven't been anywhere near any of the places they're writing about. Why wouldn't you do that when it's not when it's not difficult? Why would you could if you want to? People don't even understand this. You can walk into the old Bailey and sit in the public gallery and spend eight hours watching a criminal trial if you want to. And I don't know why writers think they can do without writers for television do without that kind of research. It's sort of bizarre to me. Well, a couple of questions. The first yeah. is you described well we've sort of pigeonholed you as a plunger rather than a planner mm. and presumably um as such you've worked very hard researching your first episode you've created the world and you know where you're kind of going with it and 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 yet as the story develops it's going to bring in new information yeah. um, new aspects things that you hadn't managed to research possibly at the very beginning but now you're writing you're under a fair amount of pressure and you're writing on you know on the on the fly episode yeah. by episode how do you um manage that and is it a question of just getting a network of the, the right contacts yeah so people i can pick up the phone to uh, at, at the end of, in the thick of it when it's all tough and you're writing fast people that you can pick up the phone to and trust to give you the answers so i i don't know undercover uh, had a, a story element which was about the um execution of somebody in louisiana and I, I was just very lucky to have people who worked in that field who represent people who are on death row. Um, and um, I was able to pick up the phone in the middle of the night to them because they care about their subject. They care about it being represented properly in television and say, what's the answer to this really hard question that I don't know the answer to? Help me, please. I suppose having the humility, actually, to say, I don't get this. Can you help me? You know much better than me. The group of writers that I'm going to work with in um, America on my, my new show will be people who know more than me about the subject that I'm writing about. I don't care so much how good they are at writing, actually, because I'm going to do a lot of writing. But what's vital to me is that they can tell me stuff I don't know. 
And I think that's the kind of, you know, right way to go with that. And keep that going through the process. You're right. You, know, you can't get lazy late on just because you're under pressure. You've got to keep asking people and keep finding the right answers if you can. Uh, you talked a little bit um, more about the, the worry um, of people sort of seeing a mistake and losing yeah. faith in the whole series and, and the whole sort of thing comes tumbling down. Yeah. Has that ever happened to you or either as a writer a bit or as you know, a, a viewer where you see something and suddenly the, you know, the magic starts to shimmer and die away? Um, something that I've written or something. Something you've written or something that you've, you've watched and, and, and had that experience happen to you. I had a great letter complaint to the BBC actually about an episode of Silk, which was um, from somebody who lives in Lincoln's Inn and said something like, I'm misquoting, but something like, I know for a fact that on a Sunday morning there would be no music playing in Lincoln's Inn. Right? I thought, what? Hang on. What's that about? And it was the score. There was a, the film written for the music, written for the film, and she yeah. was complaining about the fact that there was loud music coming out of a building in Lincoln's Inn is what she took it to. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? Um, you know, your, your early ventures are in set in the law, which is a world that you knew. Yeah. What was it like kind of moving beyond that? And I suppose the second part of that question is, what do you think about, you know, what is it about institutions, be they the law or a village or the army, that are such fecund grounds to, to set a story in? I think maybe it's places that have rules that everybody thinks really matter. Okay. Um, and how sometimes it has to be the case that those rules have to be broken or circumvented. I think rules also always contain within them discretions that um, are interesting places for writers to go and for dramas to run. Um, um, it, it just it gives you easily structure. Um, so any trial has a natural structure which you can slot into, and it's a good one for storytelling, actually. You know, you get a speech at the end and you get a verdict at the end, and that's usually good news in terms of storytelling. Um, and it matters, you know, whether somebody goes to prison for the rest of their life or is executed. Is it was it Counts. hard to get beyond that that frame, as it were, if that's where you'd started with your storytelling to to move outside writing courtrooms? Um, so I um, I've written two films about physics, one about Stephen Hawking, one about Einstein. Yeah, I failed my physics O level. Um, and um, I had the best time of my life finding out about their subjects, about that kind of physics, obviously to an incredibly limited extent, um, only as good as being able to talk about it seriously and properly in a room of other people who don't know anything about it mm. and know better than that, right? Um, but what a treat and what a privilege to kind of get to talk to Stephen Hawking about um, the beginning of the universe, you know, or... Roger Penrose about mathematics, the mathematics of the beginning of the universe. Um, um, what a great shaming thing it was for me that I'd gone around in the world up until then thinking that that kind of science was not of interest to me and that it's okay to laugh at the fact that I failed my physics O-level and my maths O-level at dinner parties. And the obvious and much reported kind of equivalent to that is how impossible it would be for any of us to say... I've never seen any Shakespeare, um, which is a sort of arts equivalent of that yeah. kind of remark. And it's unforgivable, really, I think, 
you know. Um, so, yeah, lucky in that way. And was there a kind of international element in that you, you mentioned Heimat as a, mm. the, the long German mm. series, Did you uh, as an influence. Did you feel that there is a very distinct, you know, non-English language tradition with uh, television, with drama that you wanted to engage with? Yeah, so that was when I was starting to write um, The Village, yeah. which, the, the same notion, you know, one small place and a, a history moves through it and the camera never leaves the village. So that was the kind of idea for the story, mm. um, which is, I think is a simple and sort of effective one. Um, but, um, yeah, I go and see all the time, you know, foreign language films and lots of German films, actually, um, uh, all the time, yeah. I've got a couple of um, questions about kind of process and plotting. Mm. So you talked about um, how in BBC versus other um, yeah. Uh, yeah, other places where you have specific ad breaks that you have to work towards. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about what other constraints and devices um, that you use to create the rhythm of a an episode or, 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 or indeed a film? Um, okay, well, that, that, I mean, I've been writing about phone hacking. This is a f- film based on the Nick Davis, the Guardian journalist's book um, about phone hacking. And it's the hardest thing I've ever done by a long, long way um, because the constraints are so specific and so exacting um, and because the people that you're writing about are so um, litigious. Um, or most of them. Um, so it's writing a really difficult film with real problems in it, which I'll tell you about just quickly in a second, um, whilst knowing that you you really, really have to be telling as close a version of the truth as you can possibly manage. And that's the big fat rule, really. And Nick, who is hugely helpful, has been, continues to be hugely helpful, of course is a journalist, and of course is a particular type of journalist, and his only interest is going is, is finding the truth. Right, and he does. You know, he sticks to all those rules all of the time. At least two sources always, and checking and checking and checking. And he he expects that of me, not a journalist. Right, not used to that kind of rigor. You know, honestly, um, so that's been absolutely fascinating, and it's a real problem because, for example, um, there are two main lawyer characters in it. Right, um, they're both called Mark, right? and. I know and you know that in the world of Hollywood, one of the lawyers is in the first half of the film and the other is in the second. And the second one doesn't arrive until halfway through. They in Hollywood would tell me, and I know they would, um, make it into one guy, right? I can't make... Not change the name of the second one. No, make it into one guy, right? We just want it to be one person, right? Give the first guy more, more of the second guy's story, you know, change a little bit, just do that. Okay, I can't do that. You really can't do that, you know. It's interesting that I'm I, I'm sort of talking about this specific instance, which mm. is, is, is you couldn't think of a of a su- of subject matter which is which more requires you to be accurate, truthful, and right, mm. right. But actually, one really should be thinking about it that those things in relation to other subjects too, you know. I suppose because I think I probably have to confess to being a lot more you know cavalier towards proper exact truth in other things. Um. And on that notion of truth, where does Last Post fit into this, which is autobiographical, yeah. but different from your, your legal stuff, and it's, it's based on an earlier episode of your, yeah. of your life. Where did the interest, had that been something you'd wanted to do for a long time? Yeah, these are my first memories. So um, it's a story about a unit of military police officers and 
soldiers and their wives in Aden in the 1960s. And um, I was three, four years old when my father was posted there, so I was there. And they, they, they literally, my first few memories come from there. And then lots of family stories on top of those memories come from there. Um, and so it's been something that I've been wanting, I've been waiting to write for quite a long time. And I, was, I was interested that, I have, that I've watched four episodes, so not all yeah. of them, but you don't touch the kind of Mad Mitch piece. No. Which, which, which is, those who don't know, a, a Scottish officer who kind of jumped the reservation in, in yeah. 67, in some ways the, the best known story. It's kind of deliberately outside that narrative. But what I thought was was very interesting about it was it's, um, you know, it, it's it's kind of a, it's not really a known place in the British story, you know, people, mm. people, it, it, but it, but it is this huge part of empire and it seems to play, well, I suppose what I thought about it in, in terms of writing about the army with my book as well is what I've often found is you, you have these kind of stock properties, you have the officers and the, mm. you know, the wives and then the violence, which are all, all kind of, it's like the toolkit. And then mm. what was interesting is how you interface mm-hmm. those different bits how did you go about, I mean, again, was that very research-led or what was your, your process? So my mum is still alive yeah. and um, it was lovely to me to speak to her about all those things properly in a way that my dad, who's not alive, hadn't really talked properly to me. Yeah. Um, although he did say one thing to me, my dad, which was before he died, which was that he had, a, um, he had his own Remembrance Day, which wasn't in November... Um, but it was on another day, and I don't remember the date, but it was when a soldier died in his arms. In a sniper shot him dead, and he died in my dad's arms. And on the date, every year that that happened, he took himself away and had a long walk and thought about all of those things. And um, so when he died and he wasn't around anymore to tell me any more about that kind of stuff, I sort of, you know, turned to my mum, I suppose. That. And of course, she had a very different picture <laughs> yeah. of um, life in the army in 1960 as a, you know, married to a, an army officer. Uh, I mean, I was again struck with that, and on the kind of similitude thing, mm-hmm. you know, it seemed that there, that there was one, uh, the lieutenant, the guy who's cuckolded. I was suddenly thinking, he's too old to be a lieutenant. You know, what's what's oh, going on go. there and, yeah. and stuff. And I, I was thinking, hang on, does that matter at yeah. all in that situation? I thought, you know, probably, probably not, because as yeah. as you say, like the tension. The institution is there for its rules and its customs, right? Yeah. That's what you're yeah. you're working from for that. Yeah. But I'm supposed what I'm really interested in army terms is that all those men, and you know much more about this than yeah. I do, but all these men are asked to, without thinking, sometimes, often, do what they're told to do. Yeah. And you hear that all the time, that, that they say that. Um, but these are also people, men and women, who are often incredibly smart, intelligent human beings, mm. right? Way smarter than lots of film and television chooses to depict them, right? Yeah. And so that kind of deliberate kind of shutting down of your own thought process so that I must be a cog in the machine that works so that the machine works, it's an extraordinary thing to do. And I think I wanted to kind of like, you haven't watched the last two episodes, yeah. but I wanted to sort of test that and see what happens when... Um, Good soldiers take a moral choice to step outside what they've been asked to do because they see a stronger right. And I, and than I the saw one in that the interview as well that you, you were kind of pushing against this notion of the kind of idiot officer, huh. as it were. Yeah, completely. Why is that such a why has that been such a long standing trope, do you think, in in TV? And and what made you want to undermine it? 
Um, what one really undermined it was that I, I've known throughout my life lots of soldiers who are just not like that. <laughs> and it, it just felt to me like a great unfairness that they're being represented in that way, you know. Um, I think it's a, a pretty damn interesting life that you're asked to kill people for a living. And I think it's almost certain that people with that those levels of intelligence must think very hard about what they're doing and why all of the time. I think to not represent that, to not write about that, is a terrible kind of failure, really. And it, it, it also seemed to me that by having it in a, you know, in a counterinsurgency or a situation like that, yeah. in some ways you can avoid some of the kind of you know, very linear narrative. You look at like, you know, Band of Brothers mm. or We Were Soldiers or something like that. Mm. It's, it's the same format. It's like the training montage back home yeah. and then the unit going to fight yeah. and, and then you cut back to the wives and it is, you know, the, the story inevitably has to go in quite a straight line. Whereas if yeah. it's this, this mix between violence and not violence, yeah. you've got, because you've got, you know, the scenes at the BP club and stuff like that yeah. and, and things. Um, but, but I was wondering again with that and how much are you, how much do you think about kind of arc when you're building your characters? Like with, with the, the cook or lid officer, right? Who, yeah. you know, we see him, his, his wife is cheating on him in the first episode. Yeah. He's not, you know, he's not in great physical shape and everything. Yeah. And he has this kind of redemptive path, at least by episode four. Don't, don't break it to me what's going to yeah. happen. But you, 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 you're, you're late. This is spoiler laden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to say this in the intro. I'm just like, no, no, stop, stop spoiling everything. But are you, are you like consciously thinking about yeah, all of the time. Yeah. yeah, all of the time. Where's everybody going? Yeah. Um, I mean, the tough stuff about The Last Post, for example, is that there are eight main characters, nine maybe, yeah. you know, and you've got to keep them all up and running uh, with proper stories mm. and paying proper attention to all of them all of the time. And, oh, you know, first world problem. I'm not down a coal mine every day. It's yeah. fine. Did you feel like, with again, this is massive spoiler alert, but like that kind of very explicit sexual tension with the reporter and stuff like that, yeah. did you feel kind of obliged to put that in? Or did you think that was sort of... Um, necessary. Was it necessary, yeah. Do you mean that I was obliged to put it in because, because all television to be watchable must have sex Yeah, right? was that... A, no, yeah. is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think so. I think, yeah. yeah, I think that is it, actually. Yeah, that's the whole okay. answer, yeah. I think that's it. Well, actually, one one thing I wanted to ask on yeah. on your your next project. I don't know how much you can talk about this, but yeah. but you know, going going to the US and you you warned yeah. us off air that you're not you're not a sort of guru and savant on the next age of TV and digital and, yeah. and stuff like that. But now, obviously, we're going to ask you about that. Yeah. But you know, what what are you doing next, and and how does that American world that you're going into compare to the the British one you've grown up in? Okay, so first of all, how you get to get it made is completely different. So you go and pitch. Mm. That old Hollywood thing, it's also true in television in America. Um, 40 minutes, I went, I had three days of, I think I did it 10 times, the same pitch. Um, do you have someone guiding, do you have like an so agent guiding in, it You go in with a team, you go in with, mm. I went in, so there were four producers with me. Had they approached me. you? Pardon? Had they approached you? Yeah. 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 So then there were five of us in a room and you, and there might be five of them. And mm. it's usually, you know, big boardroom staff and then you come and you do your 40 minutes of telling the story and um uh it's back to pretending to be incredibly spontaneous <laughs> <laughs> and much harder all the people that you're with who've heard it 10 times mm. also you know pretending that they're moved again by <laughs> what you're telling as well you know? as the story do you have to um 
know sort of other things about sort of um, like what the locations would be, how much it will cost? Do you have to bear that in mind as you're pitching, or is that not how much it would cost? I mean, there are different sorts of pit- ways of doing pictures. I think you know, I just tell the story in mm. quite a lot of detail, um, and. Um, do you know that Martin Amis short story where they have a pitch meeting for a sonnet, and they <laughs> it's, it's about a world in which screenwriters and poets like fates are reversed, and so all like all the poets like drive in sports cars and sleep with models, and hang out and stuff <laughs> like that, that. and brilliant. all the all the screenwriters like live in garrets and are starving, <laughs> and brilliant. they have a pitch meeting for a sonnet where a sort of cigar chomping. Uh, executive goes like, you know, we love the quartet, and like some of us, <laughs> some of us are sold on the sester, but basically no one's down with the couplet. That's brilliant. That's so funny. It's very, very good. Yeah. yeah. But was that alien being in that kind of environment? I completely loved it. Yeah. Did actually, you? yeah. Was it sort of a return? I, mean, I, haven't done, I haven't done the proper work yet, or any of the proper work yet. You know, well, just... was pitching sort of a return to the courtroom? Yeah, mm. it was great. I realized, I found like, I don't know, acting. Mm. Acting. I found myself sort of standing up and walking over to the window and all sorts of shit like that. I mean, real nonsense, you know, real nonsense. And finding myself really moved by what I was saying. I mean, that level of kind of bullshit, you know. Mm. Um, I think kind of sort of truthful in the moment. And sure enough, you know, if you can do that, sure enough, they're moved too by mm. you being moved. That's what they want. They think, you know. Conviction and passion. I don't suppose they're wrong, actually. Can you tell us a bit about what the show is about? Yeah, it's really simple. It's really simple. It's about um, a um, 17-year-old boy driving his mum's car on the south side of Chicago, hits a motorcycle, 17-year-old kid comes off a motorcycle uh, and dies. So it's the bomb for other vanities. He died, yeah. Yeah. Um, The 17-year-old is the son of a judge. He goes home, he leaves the scene of the accident. He goes home, he tells his dad what's happened. And his dad, the judge, says, there's only one thing we can do here, which is the right thing, which is we have to go to the police station and I can try and we can try and explain why you ran away. Mm. You're 17, you panicked, I get it, let's go now. We have to go. On the way to the police station, the radio news is on and the story is there's been a hit and run in Englewood in Chicago, which wouldn't ordinarily be a news story were it not for the fact that the 17-year-old boy who died, who was knocked off the motorcycle, is the youngest son of the main man in the biggest crime family in Chicago. At which point, judge and son turn around and go home and start to be corrupted in Mm. how they protect him from being sent into a justice system that the judge knows better than anybody is really unfair really unsafe really dangerous will probably end up in his son being dead yeah so and so it's a fall from grace of a good liberal judge in order to for good human reasons protect his son and what's the title so it's based on an israeli story israeli uh, it's already been made called your honor okay hard thing for me was i had to take the u out of the word honor I have to keep writing that in order to make it okay, and it's really difficult. I have the same yeah. problem with, with my book, which is about colour. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, you get like 3,000. 7,000. Oh. Yeah. There were 7,000 references to the word colour. Yeah, it's, it's, and by far, li- I, I was sad enough to do one of those... Um, you can sort of plug in your text and yeah. the words that are used most often are the words okay. that come out biggest in a kind of illustrative yeah. diagram of the words that you use. And colour and colourful <gasps> are the two most used words. It's so your book becomes a much shorter book in America when you use that number of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of... and it's really problematic because each, each page has the, has a colour, has the colour on yeah. the strip. So, you know, the, lay, the layout was, it was a nightmare.
I've been doing that thing of going, being in America and making myself not sound, not speak English English, yeah. only say things that could not be mistaken for an English person, which is American English. And I think it's, okay. it's, it's, it's mm. Riz Ahmed did that in um, in uh, the Night of, which was the American version of the Criminal Justice that I wrote. And everything. he went there, and none of the crew knew he was British. Really, throughout the whole duration of filming and everything, he never dropped the being an American. You know around the set it's and everything mm. really impressive don't you think very impressive yeah and, uh, conscious of time but the final thing we should yeah. say is is it now a real a golden age of tv i mean i know you 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 god yes. you're not a mm. god yes i had a note from this is a completely different program not connected to this american show right yeah. another thing i'm just developing okay uh, uh this is the worst note i ever had and profoundly true um you do know don't you peter there are 500 other shows on television at any given moment right by which she means fucking making it exciting, make it exciting on page one or we're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Having 500 things on isn't necessarily a good thing, but, I mean, there's so much that's so great. Mm. And... And people take more risks. When I was writing Einstein, right, when I'd written Einstein, the BBC and me, and we, we wrote to a particular actor who's a big film actor and said, do you want to be Einstein, right, for the BBC? OK. And he wrote back, I won't say who it is, he wrote back and said, um, you must be fucking joking. I'm a film actor, don't ever write to me again, you cunt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's, um, that's 12 years ago. Yeah. Right. Absolutely sure, well, I've, I've seen him in really big television. Okay. <laughs> and that's because he gets 13 hours of himself on screen. Quite right, you know, that's the right choice now. He might have been right then. It might have been damaging for his career to be on a BBC film, but not now. On that note, yeah. I think we should wrap up. Look, yeah. Peter, thanks for being such a... Thank you so much. Sorry about the use of that word. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll warn people. Yeah, yeah, that's probably our strongest word ever on the podcast. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. it's a quote. Poetry. It's, it's a quote. We hope you enjoyed that. Now, a brief update from our lives, including, for the first time, a little bit about what we've been reading. Simon? Yeah, so we decided we were going to have this new section about what we've been reading. Um, we need to think of a clever name for it. Yeah. Not what we've been reading. Suggestions <laughs> gratefully received. Um, I have been reading uh, fairly dense material this week. Uh, I've been reading uh, legal judgments related to uh, British Army accountability cases. Uh, but I also uh, reread Anthony Beaver's History of the Battle of Berlin, which was uh, very interesting. Um, and more generally, I have been uh, working on my book, so plus I change there, although I took uh, some time off last week to finish a magazine draft for Harper's, and I've just started spinning my wheels for a assignment in Belgium next week. Cassia, what have you been reading? I have um, been doing a few little book reviews. Um, I like to, while I'm doing bigger um, projects like um, writing books. I also like to do sort of smaller pieces on the side. So I've been doing a couple of um, book reviews and, and, and reading books for that. So I did um, a piece for The Telegraph that looked at um, several colour books, which was really good fun. And I'm also now reading um, three books about Chinese uh, design um, for a review for the TLS. And um, in broader news, I'm um, reaching, unlike Simon, whose um, book has been pushed back, um, a little way and giving him a nice um, nice amount of breathing room I'm rushing um, towards my final deadline um, for publication in the autumn which is very exciting very exciting indeed so 
As ever, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Elizabeth Davies, Ed Kiernan and Olivia Krellin. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Our design is by James Edgar. And Zara Hankier looks after our social media. You can find us on all manner of social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Always Take Notes. Uh, no, we're not. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our website is alwaystakenotes.com. You remembered. Almost. <laughs> and as ever, please do leave us a review on iTunes. So many of you have. And thank you very much for that. But we love hearing your comments and suggestions and tips on people who we can interview in the future. 